Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of anti-discrimination law. And Richard, we turn to this today inspired in part by your most recent column for Defining Ideas, in which you are putting uh, HR5, this is known as the Equality Act of 2021, under the microscope. This is a proposed federal law that aims to deal with sex discrimination in public accommodations by expanding the definitions of both sex discrimination and public accommodations. So why don't we set the table this way? Um, Give us a sense of where the law stands now and what would change if the Equality Act were to pass into law. Well, I mean, uh, first of all, I I think it's important to say that the uh, Equality Act begins with a preface which indicates that they believe that the situation of dealing with lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, and queer people, LGBTQ as it's called, and women is systematic and pervasive throughout all areas of society. And it is quite clear in any large society that you could always point to some individual cases of discrimination. Uh, But the idea that there is some kind of a pattern of practice of discrimination in these two areas uh, seems to me to be totally contrary to the available facts. It's also the case that other groups have suffered some kinds of discrimination and they are given the back of the hand treatment. Uh, So one of the things that's quite clear about this statute is if you wish to stand on religious objections against some various kinds of activities brought by gay and lesbian couples, uh, uh, you're not going to be able to get the slightest support out of the statute. Essentially, one of the things that it tries to do is to say that any claim of uh, uh, religious autonomy is going to be beaten by the fact that all these claims of uh, sex and sexual orientation discrimination are essentially so pervasive that the elimination of these things amounts to a compelling state interest, even in a competitive market. Uh, So what the Act does, in effect, is two things, at least. Uh, It uh, first of all, it expands the class of protected categories, not just for employment, but all across the board, uh, to cases of gender discrimination, not, uh, uh, t- excuse me, uh, to cases in which it turns out that there are cases of gender, equi- uh, gender equity, and then also the cases in which it turns out uh, that there are claims of discrimination based upon sexual orientation. And then on another dimension, what it does is it takes the definition of a public accommodation and makes it even broader than it had previously been. Uh, So what you do is you have very tough rules uh, with respect to the definition of the wrongful conduct, and you increase the number of uh, institutions and operations and facilities that are governed by it. Uh, That there might be any other side to this particular question, any progress in this particular area uh, that is worthy of note, any improvement inside the courts is ignored. This is essentially a juggernaut designed to make sure that anybody who opposes anything which is in favor, which is supported by the civil rights movement um, uh, will be crushed uh, uh, by the application of this law. And remember, one of the dangers you always have with a particular law like this is that you get the force of the state on it. It is not an accident, therefore, that in this particular case, what they indicate is that the Justice Department can intervene in these cases on behalf of individual claimants. And that, in effect, means that when you decide to take on one of these things, you're facing not only a private lawsuit, but you're facing the assembled might of the United States Department. Department of Justice and its various branches. So this is a very potent, very powerful statute. Richard, obviously, an awful lot of the 
the public debate here centers around the question of which sports programs trans kids should play and wh- whether it's the ones based on their biological sex or the one based on their gender identity. And this is a bit sticky on libertarian grounds because it's sort of an inherently collective question. Many of these programs are administered through public institutions, so you've got the government involved. And both sides, the trans kids who want to play in leagues according to gender identity and the kids and parents who don't want them to, usually because they argue it throws off the competitive balance for physiological reasons, both of those camps feel like they're the ones who are being denied their rights. So from a libertarian perspective, how should we think about how we can come to workable accommodations here, to a workable resolution. Well, I I think this is a case in which no accommodation is going to be possible. I think it is quite easy to think of accommodations that can work if it turns out you're talking about restrooms and showers and bathrooms and so forth. And so then let me give you what the method is. The libertarian, whenever he starts to look at some kind of a collective institution by government, asks the first question, how do voluntary associations deal with these particular questions? And how do other kinds of government agencies deal with these questions. And the theory is if you have voluntary organizations, they have to have the power to include and the power to exclude. And what happens is if people are excluded, it means that there's no way that you can voluntarily come to an agreement, which leaves those people who are inside the group are better off by taking people from the outside. The libertarian response is we do not have to have a large tent under which everybody resides. We can have two or more tents. And so if you then see with the way the private situations go, there is, to my knowledge, virtually no private organization when it comes to competition, uh, which will allow a self-declared women or girls uh, to compete against uh, biological women or girls in any kind of an athletic meet. Uh, the reason you gave is perfectly clear. Uh, it turns out it completely throws off the competitive balance. It's a sort of a rough generalization. Uh, the women's records in virtually every sport that involves speed and strength are uh, that of 14-year-old, 15-year-old boys. Uh, it turns out that if you have a 15-year-old boy who can beat every woman, it's going to stand to reason they're going to beat every girl. Then the next thing you do is you start looking at how other regulatory agencies deal with this. And I think one of them that is clearly applicable is the United States Olympic Committee, which is has to face shape its rules based upon what the international organizations do. Uh, for years, they have run a situation in which they test with exhausting thoroughness any effort on the part of anybody who is male to try to compete in some kind of a female event. And so they have urine and other kinds of blood tests. They have limits with respect to testosterone and so forth. There are even the odd case in which somebody who purports or or appears to be uh, by external signs of female is going to be barred from competition. And that's because they understand if you're going to try to have a competition and it turns out that there's a skew, it's not going to work. Uh, So when you start looking at these particular claims, it it can't just be the claim that, uh, oh, we're excluded, we're hurt. Uh, If they're included, other people are going to be hurt. Well, then what is the option that these people have? Well, here's a very nice situation. They can start their own transgender league and invite all biological girls and all men who gender identify as girls to compete in these events. And once you do that, the only people who will show up will be boys uh, because no girl is going to subject herself to enter into a race where she cannot succeed. Um, In fact, uh, one of the things I think that's quite likely in these cases is if there is advanced warning that a certain biological boy wants to enter into a girl's event, there's going to be huge 
social pressure in order to get that person out. Ostracism and maybe even threats will take place uh, because everybody understands that uh, in an effort in this particular case to advance gender parity, you're going to destroy women's sports. And this, again, is kind of neat because what it does is it shows you the real conflict between the two paragraphs that I just read to you in the findings, quote unquote. These are all bogus findings, but findings nonetheless, uh, one of which talks about the dangers to women and the other which turns about the dangers to LBGQ people and so forth. And it turns out this is a case in which those two interests are very much in opposition to one another. And I don't think that this is an area on which there could be compromise. I think it is utterly improper to somebody to use the anti-discrimination laws to force associations on other individuals. I think it is totally proper for people who have uh, various kinds of gender identity issues of one sort or another to form their own organizations through schools or elsewhere in order to gain the participation. Uh, So I don't think it's a close case. And I mean, one of the things that's so striking when you look at all the previous rulings that have been made with respect for accommodations is the unwillingness of the strong civil rights advocates to compromise. So uh, when the Charlotte School District had a a biological girl who had gender dysphoria, and what happened is that the school system said, look, if you feel uncomfortable with girls, we can put you in a separate dressing room, no questions asked. And what happened was the Civil Liberties Union and people like Vanita Gupta, who's now in the uh, Biden administration, said that's good, not good enough, and they wanted to force them into the boys' room. So now you have one girl who wants to come into a boys' room and everybody else, parents and students who are opposed to it. And so what we do is essentially we, quote, protect the civil rights of one person, but we compromise the civil rights of 99.9% of the population. I think that those actions were very destructive. I think the Trump administration was right to stop bringing that suit. I think generally when you have difficult questions having to deal with teenagers who have sensitive conditions, local administrators are aware enough of these things that they will do a far better job of handling them than the federal government. And I think it's a real canard in the statute to sort of assume that everybody who's in a position of power is going to be somewhat biased or uh, gender discriminatory on these kinds of issues when exactly the opposite is true. This is a classic case in which those people purporting to defend civil rights are in fact the greatest defenders against the civil rights of the vast majority of the people who will be subject to their rules. I want to pick up on precisely that point, actually. And you mentioned free association concerns a moment ago. Obviously, if this proposal passes, it's going to have a lot of implications for religious individuals or institutions who have objections to homosexuality or transsexuality. And there's an interesting observation that you make in this piece, which is that our conception of the LGBT community as a minority group necessitating some special treatment under the law and our conception of religious groups, evangelical Christians and the like, as a minority group necessitating special treatment under the law tend not to match up with each other and are in some ways you argue sort of backwards. Explain that for us. Yes, well, there's a famous remark in a case called Caroline Products, which had to answer the following uh, problem. In 1937, the United States Supreme Court took the general position that all forms of economic regulation are, except in very rare cases, to be immune from judicial oversight, uh, so that economic liberties and private property would receive very much cut-down protection. And it looked as though this was a general rule. And then, literally, within the week, 
everybody starts to ask the question, what are you going to do about uh, various kinds of minority groups, black people, Negroes, as they were then called, who are systematically shut out of the process by white dominant institutions at a level of exclusive control, which is utterly inconceivable to think of today. Jim Crow was institutionalized from top to bottom. Right now, the institutional dominance are people on the left. And so what happens is in 1938, it was accurate to say uh, that minorities were discrete and with discrete and insular groups entitled to heightened protection from the courts because they could not protect themselves in the political process. Well, if you start going from 1938 to 2020, the world has changed. Uh, There are very few well-oiled machines that even come close to matching uh, the various groups that represent gay, lesbian, and other people, you know, transgender people and so forth. They are organized, they are powerful, they have huge numbers of allies, vast resources at their disposal, and now it turns out that the dominant guy is Jack Phillips, a lone proprietor of very limited resources, um, who essentially they want to treat as though he's General Motors because he refuses to make a wedding cake for somebody else. Uh, You take the old logic, he's the one who's entitled to the special protection because he can't do anything through the political process. If he could do something through the political process, AB5 would never be on the books, would never be a proposal whatsoever because it would be killed. And now what we know in effect is that this is virtually certain to pass the House because there will be no Democratic defections and there may well be one or two Republican votes. I think it actually has passed the House. I'm sorry. This is not a prediction. It's a statement of what happened. (laughs) Well, um, if that's the situation, how can you call yourself discrete and insular if it turns out that you have a dominant, absolute position of the party in power, control of the House, the presidency, and in fact, probably the leading edge with respect to the Senate. Uh, So uh, what they're doing, in effect, is they're basically pretending that they're powerless in order to exert enormous amounts of power over other people who are in fact powerless. Jack Phillips has been hounded, he's been abused, he's been called all sorts of names, he's received death threats, and everybody else on the other side worries about the dignity of a person to whom he tells politely, I will sell you anything that I have off the shelf, I can give you recommendations as to where you can go to buy yourself a wedding cake, as a matter of conscience I will not do it, and this person is now called somebody who is the descendant of Adolf Hitler because he's the kind of guy who creates attitudes that are going to lead to a holocaust. That was the word holocaust that was used by a member of the Civil Rights Commission of Colorado in basically denouncing him. And so what we do now is we have every organized branch of government taking after somebody like Jack Phillips and what we then do is we announce that he's the majority, he's the dominant party, we have to go after him. In fact the reality is exactly the opposite ways. I do believe that if the Supreme Court were to hear this thing uh, with an open mind and apply that particular principle, it would strike down this statute as it applies to religious individuals as being oppressive and unconstitutional. Last thing that I'll ask you, there is clearly an appetite amongst a broad swath of the American people to be as accommodating as they reasonably can be of people's differences. And this debate is probably a good example of that, because in order to accommodate the trans population, it's a very, very small percentage of the population at large, we have now tied ourselves in knots on on the two issues on which the delta between their biological sex and their gender identity creates the hardest logistical problems, which the use of restrooms and the composition of sports teams. Just the fact that the conversation is already there when we are not that far removed from a time when the lifestyle was considered aberrant in many quarters tells you how badly a lot of people want to accommodate this. Probably 
because they want to be nice. They want to be considerate. You have been on the record for a long time arguing for a, a much more circumscribed approach to anti-discrimination laws, arguing that they have their uses, but we're overdoing it. What would you say to the people for whom their opposition to that idea boils down to a sort of simple and reflexive, I don't know, it just it sounds mean. It just sounds like it will make those people feel marginalized. Well, I don't want anybody to feel marginalized. And in fact, there are a whole variety of voluntary associations that can prop them up and will and already do. Let me put the question in the following way. One of the arguments that you hear is that there's a very strong social consensus in favor of making various kinds of accommodations for uh, gay and lesbian groups and for uh, homosexual groups and for uh, women and all the rest of that stuff. So that's fine. Well, what happens is if you've got 95% of the population on your side, that means business after business is going to be eager to court your business. So, for example, when I wrote a brief in opposition to uh, the Colorado Commission in the Masterpiece Cake, I did two things. One is I looked at all the stores in Lakewood, California that would sell bakery goods or wedding cakes. And within literally a mile of that particular store, there were probably 20, 30, 50 kinds of stores available. And in fact, the uh, couple that wanted the cake from Jack Phillips got it from somebody free of charge down the block, quite literally. Economic loss is $6. This man has been broken. His business has been destroyed. And what they do is they file a charge and they march off and they go somewhere else. Nothing that I am saying is going to prevent these organizations from taking place. If you have a state like Texas that doesn't have any protection with the grounds of sexual orientation, they still have all sorts of groups that specialize in gay weddings because people who are gay want to have those kinds of organizations because they know what the drills and how they work. Voluntary organizations work. Uh, if you're talking about the use of force and you have a consensus and there's somebody who dissents, then you have to take after them. Why is that? Because one person could kill everybody else. But if the only thing that you can do is refuse to deal with somebody who has multiple opportunities in a competitive market, then the fact that there's a consensus in favor of a given group means that they have so many opportunities that they're the last individuals who should be entitled to claim that everybody in the world has to serve them. If they can get 99% of the market, they are doing very fine. Uh, if the other people uh, can get 1% of the market, they can survive. There's nothing to prevent anybody who disapproves of the way Jack Phillips does business to say he doesn't go there and wants to go somewhere else. But the argument that consensus is what drives this makes a fundamental mistake. It is only on matters of use of force where you need unanimity. In those cases where there's no monopoly power, no threat of conversion, we do not have to have unanimity. What we have to do is to have a high variety of choice. And this is certainly true with respect to religious organizations, and indeed it's true more generally. When I wrote my book on Forbidden Grounds 20, oh, now 30 years ago, I took the basic position that Title VII should not apply uh, to anybody in competitive markets. And I still take to that position. Now that has been widely defeated with respect to ordinary cases, but the religious groups which actually want to do it are raising those kinds of claims, and I would stand at this point four square behind them. So the consensus argument I think cuts in exactly the opposite way and I think the most dangerous thing in the world is for a group which is so sure that it's right, has a huge majority of the population on its side thinks it's necessary to disarm the people who disagree with them. That to my mind is a form of totalitarian behavior. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening.
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.